How's everybody doing? All right, you ready? All right. Uh, sorry, no notes printed out. I think Brian emailed them to you. We had technical printer difficulties. So, bulletins and notes are emailed this week. All right. But today we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's good that technical difficulties can interrupt our study of God's Word, can it? We'll be examining chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, a whopping sentence. It's one sentence, two verses. And so I thought we were going a little too fast through Colossians. Let's slow down. Today, one sentence. But first, before we do that, I want to thank Brian for... I look over, he's not where he's supposed to be. Thank Brian for his message last week from Psalm 86. I really appreciated uh, his description. There he is. Thanks, Brian. Yay. Uh, his description of David's desperate circumstances when he wrote this psalm. David was running from his li- for his life as King Saul sought to kill him. And in this difficult time of despair, David turned to the Lord for help. He relied fully and completely on God to meet his uh, many needs in his de- desperate situation. He sought the Lord for direction and guidance. In verse 11 of Psalm 86, David prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I, that I may walk in your truth. David knew that left to, to his own devices, his way, uh, he would surely give in to despair. He would turn away from God and, like Saul before him, turn to the things of this world. And so David prays that God would intervene, that God would work in his life, that God would teach him the way of the Lord. For what purpose? Not just for head knowledge, not so just he'd know some stuff, but so his feet might walk in God's truth. David's desire to walk in God's way, uh, where God's truth directs, going what God, doing what God commands. That was David's desire. Now, this walking metaphor that David uses, and we'll see today in Colossians, is found throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. Let me give a few examples. In the Old Testament, the word walk is often used when speaking of obedience to the law. In Leviticus 18.4, we read, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Walking in the law means living in obedience to the law of the Lord. Jesus also used uh, this walking metaphor on a number of occasions. In John 12.35, he said, The light is among you for a little while longer. Speaking of himself, walk while you have the light. Lest darkness overtake you, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Jesus says that there are two possible paths to walk, two ways to walk. You can walk in the light, implied here, following Jesus, obeying Jesus, living for Jesus. Or you can blindly walk in the darkness, following the ways of this world. And then what is probably the most famous uh, walking metaphor Place where it's used, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Which doesn't mean we don't believe what we see. It means we live based on a confident, confident, confident trust in God's yet unseen promises for our futures. Now these are just a few of many, many examples of how God's Word uses this walking metaphor. And I believe the main reason 
for this is because it's so very clear, it's so very apt. From birth to death, we are on a journey, a series of steps we take down the path of life. Some paths, like David's when he wrote Psalm 86, are extremely difficult. And some just involve normal day-to-day living. But according to God's Word, no matter the path we are on, how we walk matters. How we respond to the circumstances of life, how we live on this journey is crucial. What we do, what we say, what we think, even what we feel matters to God. Some Christians believe, or or at least live as if they believe, all that matters is their initial steps of faith, steps to Christ. I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I'm, I'm good, right? Now I can walk anywhere I please. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. How you walk as a Christian matters a great deal. Again, uh, life again and again brings us to forks in the road, moments of decision where, where we must choose the path to walk on. Will we walk in God's truth or the lies of the enemy? Will we walk in His commands or in ever-changing cultural norms? Ever-changing norms, that's what our culture gives us. Will we walk in light or darkness Will we walk in by faith or sight? God's Word is filled with guidance and direction on how we are to walk, uh, live, behave in this world. As we already in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 saw, Paul writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk, live, behave in such a way that brings not shame, but honor and glory to the Lord. So again, we, what we, how we walk, our walks, are crucial. And that's the focus of our passage for today. Paul has some important things to tell believers how we are to walk in this world. In Colossians 2.6, the beginning of the sentence, he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now notice Paul begins the, the, uh, with the word therefore. This means that what follows, what we're going to look at, is based on what's gone before. And if we back up to verse 4, I think we get the the context. We could go back farther, but we'll go back at least to verse 4, get the context of this therefore. He says in verse 4, I say this, now he's speaking of what he's just said, so that's sort of included too, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So what comes after the therefore is based on the fact that Paul does not want these believers, those who have good order, remember we talked about a few weeks ago, discipline and firmness of faith in the supreme Christ who Paul is proclaiming, who Paul proclaimed in chapter 1. He doesn't want them, the people of faith, to be deluded with plausible arguments. He doesn't want them to be deceived with uh, seemingly reasonable, logical arguments of these false teachers. Remember the church is coming under attack from false, false teachers. And so in verses 6 and 7, Paul tells the Colossians and us how we're to avoid being deluded. 
how we're to remain on the true path of the Lord, and that is by walking in Christ. So today, it's my prayer that God will use His Word to speak to our hearts, that we will gain a better understanding of what it means to walk in, to live in Christ. And in so doing, we'll be inspired to examine our lives, asking ourselves uh, what we see today, does this match my walk, my life? Am I walking in Christ? Or has some false falsehood crept in and diverted me from the true path of God? Do I need to call out to the Lord as David did in Psalm 86? Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your path, that I may stay on the straight and narrow where you've put me. Really, that's what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is doing for us here. He's teaching us the way of God, the way of Christ, that we might walk in Him, that we might walk in His truth, that we might avoid falling, falling into uh, deception. And the first thing he teaches is to walk in remembrance of Christ. Walk in remembrance of Christ. In verse 6 we read, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. The command here is to walk in Him, to walk in Christ, to live in His ways, to live by His truth, to follow Him, to obey Him, to trust Him in all things, to live fully for Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? Well, that's what Paul's going to tell us. And the first thing he says is, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, why not just say, therefore, walk in Christ Jesus the Lord? Why, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, it seems he's calling his readers uh, to reflect on their past, to think back. To think back and remember who it was that they received. Remember who 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 you received. Paul wants to take them back to the foundational truths of the gospel that they believed and received. Remember, the truths about Christ, who He is, what He's done, are coming under attack from false teachers. And Paul is saying, remember what you believed and received when you first heard the gospel. Don't be deceived by these false teachers. Don't be diverted from the true path you started on. Remember what you believed when you were born again. When you received Christ Jesus as Lord, and just for clarity, receiving Him means more than simply believing some intellectual truths about Him. Even the demons believe and shudder, Scripture says. The word received in in the Greek means to take, to take up with, to take to oneself, to join to oneself, to unite to yourself. When we receive Christ, we are united to all of Christ. We are, as we've talked about throughout our study, uh, in Christ. So the truth of who Christ is had been proclaimed to the Colossians. It had been believed and received by the Colossians. They are in Christ. They'd received all of Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, It's important that Paul doesn't just say Christ Jesus, but he says Christ Jesus the Lord. They didn't receive him just as Jesus or just as Christ, but in his fullness. Yes, they received him as the one sent from God, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And yes, they received him as Jesus. Jesus is the Greek 
For the Hebrew Joshua, Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation. So they received him as Savior. But that was not all. To receive Jesus, you must receive every aspect of who he is. When you're reading through your your Bible and it says, uh, believe in his name, that's exactly what it means. The name of Jesus. Everything there is about Jesus. You don't get to piecemeal. Oh, I like that part, but I don't like that part. I remember hearing uh, Phil Jackson former coach of the Lakers, talk about how he loved to just take different things from, I love this from this religion. I love the love from, from Christianity. But that was it. They received him as Lord. They united with him as their ruler, their master, the supreme authority over their lives. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of each one of us. They received him fully as the divine Messiah, their Lord and Savior. And just to be clear, uh, this full reception of Christ is what is required. It's, it's what we're called to. It's required for, for us to be saved. It's required for us to be in Christ, to receive his forgiveness and righteousness. You must receive Christ fully, not just part of him. As Billy Graham said, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Amen, Billy. And commenting on this passage, Colossians 2.6, uh, Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon says, It's interesting to notice that the apostles preached the lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the Acts of the Apostles, 531 and 1323. On the other hand, it is amazing to notice that the title Lord is mentioned 92 times, Lord Jesus 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ six times in the same book. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So Billy and Charles, and most importantly, the Apostle Paul agree, receiving Christ only occurs when you receive him fully as Jesus Christ, the Lord, your Lord, my Lord. And here in verse 6, Paul is calling the Colossians and us to reflect on who it was that they received, who it was that we received, and to continually walk in him, submit to him as the Lord and Savior of their lives. And so, so, and in so doing, if you do that, you're protecting yourself against these false teachers from those who are trying to push a different Jesus on them, on us. This is so true for today. We'll be resistant to, to many false teachings around us if we walk in the re- reality of Christ Jesus as Lord. The reason uh, Christian cults our cults, is because they have a deceitful false doctrine about Christ. They're pushing a different Jesus than the one we received. Like the false teachers of Paul's day, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, Christian Science, just to name a few, say they believe in Jesus Christ. But who is the Christ they speak of? Certainly not the Christ of Scripture. Not the supreme Christ Jesus the Lord that Paul writes about. I remember talking to a 
Catholic woman who'd married a Mormon. I don't know why they did that, but anyway. She'd gone into uh, what was then, I don't know what it is now, Breen Christian store. This is back in the day. To purchase a gift for her godchild. And she was browsing and she noticed a section of books called cults. And in that section were books on Mormonism. And she said, how can Mormonism be a cult? They have the name, G- they have Jesus in their name. They're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The problem, the thing she didn't understand was that the Mormons, like all Christian cults, use the name Jesus, use the name Christ, and even borrow some of uh, Jesus' New Testament, some of the things about Jesus from the New Testament. But their Jesus is a totally different being from the Jesus fully revealed in the New Testament. The Jesus who is fully God. The Jesus who is supreme over all. Jesus Christ, the Lord. So you can tell a cult, a false teacher, based on their wrong, unbiblical teaching about Jesus. And the problem isn't just with the cults. There are many forms of Christianity that seek to divert us from the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord. There are legalistic groups or sects or denominations, I don't know, that add to the finished work of Christ. What Jesus did was very important, and must, you must believe it and have faith in it to be saved, but salvation also requires that you do these things, fill in the blank, with anything, and you're diverting from the true gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord. And I'll say there, uh, uh, in obedience to Christ is not, is, is not salvation. It's an it's a outflow of our salvation. We also find this diversion from the true gospel of Jesus Christ in what uh, is known as the prosperity gospel. Jesus becomes not the Savior and Lord of your life, but one who will save you. And then, if you have enough faith, provide you with health and wealth in this life. Therefore, Jesus becomes more of a heavenly genie than Jesus Christ the Lord. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians and to us, here's how to protect yourself against these false teachers and their deceptive philosophies about Jesus. Remember who it is you received. You received the supreme Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and therefore you must walk in Him. You must live in submission to Him in all things. And how do we do that? Well, I think Paul goes on to provide the answer. We're not only to walk in remembrance of Christ, but we are to walk in dependence on Christ. That's our second point. Again, verse 6, and then the beginning of verse 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. It's interesting that the command is to walk in Him. But rooted and built up in Him is not a command. Bible scholar D.A. Carson comments, these participles, rooted and built up, are in the passive voice, which implies that someone has done these things for them, namely God. The Christian faith is not a do-it-yourself religion. Carson's point is that Paul is not adding to his command to walk in Christ. He's encouraging his readers with the fact that being in Christ means you are rooted and built up in Christ. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever watched an old Western movie where the sheriff is facing down the outlaws 
in the, in the street, a gunfight, and, and in any of the good ones, the wind is blowing and the tumbleweeds are coming across between them. Or if you ever had the privilege of driving through Texas, <laughs> dodging tumbleweeds. That's a lot of fun. I enjoy that. It's like a, a game. Uh, so what's the deal with these tumbleweeds? Well, the deal is that tumbleweeds have a, a single narrow uh, root which turns brittle as they age. Their limited root structure uh, results in a short life, uh, death, and subjection to the winds, the, wild, the, the wind. Wherever the wind blows, they go. And I guess that's good for them. They plant their tumble seeds all over the, the place. But the Christian, in contrast, is to be rooted in Christ. Paul may have the imagery of Psalm 1 in mind. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In contrast to tumbleweeds, trees, especially those planted by uh, water, their roots run deep and wide into the soil. This gives them stability and life. And in a similar way, those who are in Christ are rooted in Him. Therefore, they, we draw our stability. We draw our life from Him. We're dependent on Him to walk in Him. And like the blessed man of Psalm 1, we can sink our roots deep into Christ. We can draw our stability and life from Christ as we delight in and meditate on His Word, the Word of God. Jesus Himself uses similar imagery in John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes. And it may bear more fruit, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the branches that are connected to me, the vine. And the, the, the life of the vine flows into the branches. And therefore, we are dependent on Christ for our walk, for our life, for our stability, for our fruit. So Paul says, walk in Him, live for Him, knowing that you're rooted in Him, you're dependent on Him, you receive your life, your stability from Him. And then he adds a second metaphor, not only are you rooted in Christ, but we are also built up in Him. That phrase built up in the Greek literally means to finish the structure of which the foundation has already been laid. As those who are in Christ, we are built up. We are works in progress. We know that, right? We're, we're works in progress. But as we progress, we can walk in Christ, live for Christ, because we have Christ as our perfect foundation. Again, we're dependent on Him as our foundation, our stability to walk in Him, knowing that He's at work building us up. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What an encouraging word this is. 
We're to walk in Christ, to live for Christ. And we can do this, not because we're awesome, but because God has rooted us in Christ. God is building us up in Christ. And God will complete us in Christ. And again, as Psalm 1 tells us, we can engage in God's rooting and building up. You know, how come some, th- some roots sprout bigger and more fruit? How come some buildings grow a little better and more stable? Psalm 1 tells us we can engage in God's rooting and building us up in Christ by delighting, meditating, and I would add obeying the Word of God. And in so doing, we'll grow in our connection to Christ, resulting in an ability to resist deception of false teachers. We'll be strong. I mean, the axe may come, but the tree is so strong, it resists it. The winds may blow, but the building is so strong, it will not fall. Okay, so we're to walk in remembrance of Christ and dependence on Christ. And along with this, we're to walk in the faith about Christ. This might sound a little confusing. Hang in, I'll explain. Verse 6, we're going to read the whole sentence until we get to the end each time. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught. Now, this is different from from what Paul says to the church in Corinth, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The contrast for the Corinthians is between walking in faith and sight, walking, living based on the future unseen promises of God. But here in Colossians, Paul's not speaking of faith in future promises. He's speaking of the faith, the Christian faith, specifically what we believe about Jesus Christ the Lord. We're to walk in the faith, what we believe, what is true about Jesus. This is similar to what, this is kind of a reinforcement of point one. Point three reinforces point one. Walking, living out the remembrance of what we believed about Jesus Christ, the Lord, when we were born again. That was point one. And Paul is emphasizing this by telling the Colossians that they're to walk in the established gospel, the faith of Jesus Christ the Lord that they were taught, that they received, and, and now is established in their minds, in their hearts. Walk in the established faith that you were taught. That word established is a powerful one. It means to, to make firm, to be sure of. And like rooted and built up, it's also in the passive voice. Paul is not commanding the Colossians to be established in faith. He's not, we're not being commanded, establish your faith. He's reminding them that they were taught the gospel. And as they received Christ Jesus the Lord, they were by God's grace, God's work in them, firmly established in the faith. And Paul wants to encourage them to walk in that God-established faith about Jesus Christ. Not to be diverted from the path they're on. Not to follow the false teachers, the false philosophies that were being pushed upon them. But to live based on the faith they were taught, the faith they received. This is so applicable to our lives today. Because like the Colossians, it seems that no matter where we turn... Our faith, what we believe, is being questioned, even attacked. Our dominant secular culture, our public schools, our colleges, universities, the media, and even 
Maybe many of our friends and family believe and promote false teachings about the faith that we were taught. There is no God. Or, there, or if there is, he's, he's distant and uncaring. How can a God of love allow so much evil in this world? Or more recently, how can a God of love tell us who we can and can't love? And there's the old standard attack. The Bible is filled with contradictions. Jesus was not the divine Son of God, but merely a good moral teacher. The virgin birth, miracles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ are myths handed down from a superstitious people. Now, we could do whole messages sort of tossing those aside. That's not our purpose today. These false teachings and attacks, along with many others, seek to divert us from the firmly established faith, the faith that we were taught. The heart of which Paul, I mean, maybe, maybe you're not like the Colossians. Maybe you're here today and you go, wait, I haven't been taught this faith. I'm not firmly established in this faith. Well, let me, let me do that right now. Because Paul did it already in chapter 1. After declaring the supremacy of Christ over all things, in verse 21 of chapter 1, he writes, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you pagans, you Colossians, you Riversidians, I mean, this can apply to us all. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the heart of the faith the Colossians and you, hopefully, and I were taught. By his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus Christ not only paid the penalty for our sins, which is awesome, but he also imparts... Mysteriously, I don't get this totally, it's a mystery, he imparts his righteousness to us. He makes us not innocent, but righteous. We're just not a blank slate, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Why? In order to present us holy and blameless, above reproach before God. When you face God, if you're in Christ, you're holy and blameless. You're above reproach. And he says, enter into my kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then Paul tells us who this reconciliation and presentation to God applies to. He says in verse 23, chapter 1, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And as we talked about last time, this isn't like you can lose your salvation. This is, a, the, this is the proof that you were saved. Christ's supreme work of reconciliation applies to those who continue in the faith, those who are stable and steadfast, those who don't shift from the hope of the gospel that they heard. Or to put it in terms of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, those who walk in the established faith that they were taught, those who live out their faith those who do not divert from their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. The truth of who Christ is and what He's done is their life. It's what they live for. It's how they walk. Paul says we must live based on what we've heard and will, excuse me, what we've learned, what we will continue to learn from the Word of God, not from the deluded yet plausible arguments of these false teachers in their culture or our culture. So we're to walk in remembrance of Christ, dependence on Christ, and faith about Christ. And to this, Paul concludes 
this sentence by adding, we are to walk in thanksgiving for Christ. Finally, the whole sentence before us, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, unlike the passive Greek participles, rooted, built up, established, the things that God has done for us, the Greek word abounding is active, present, participle. It's just active, okay? Do it. It's a command. Walk in thanksgiving. Abound in thanksgiving. Abounding literally means to have more than enough. Abundant. Exceeding the usual number. Thanks to God must be continually on our lips. Ever present in our hearts. This, Paul says, must be our response to the work that God has done and is doing in our lives through Jesus Christ the Lord. As Christians as those who are walking in Christ, living for Christ, rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith about Christ, our lives, like no others, should be filled with gratitude. And just to be clear, Paul's not talking about uh, mindlessly saying words. You know, who can say the most thankful words like we often do before we eat? Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, Paul's talking about gratitude deep in your soul. As Christians, again, like no others, I mean, yeah, this should be the characteristic of us. We should certainly, maybe, maybe uh, second only to love for one another is thanksgiving to God for Jesus Christ specifically. We have so much to be thankful for. I mean, we could spend our lives thanking God for what He's done for us in Christ Jesus. Think about what He has done and continues to do for you and me. By His death on the cross, He saved us from our sin. We just read about this. And He's imparted His righteousness to us. He's delivered us from the wrath of God. He's delivered us from destruction, from from hellfire, if you will. He saved us to eternal life in His presence where David in, I believe, Psalm 1611 says, there is joy and pleasures forevermore. He's taken us off the path of darkness and destruction and transported us to the path of light and life. He's given our lives meaning and purpose in Him. He's adopted us into His family. We are children of God. He continues to work in our lives, making us more and more like Jesus, building us up. He gave us, He makes us part of the body of Christ, the church. He gives us brothers and sisters to walk through the pains and sorrows of this life, to fellowship with, to share life with. He gives us, uh, this is a big one, He gives us His Spirit. God Himself dwells within us. Can we thank Him for that? Convicting, comforting, leading, guiding. He gives us His Word that reveals who He is, that we might know Him better. He allows us to come to Him in prayer. And He answers our prayer in the, in the maybe not in the way we think is best at the time, but always in the way that's best for us. In fact, 
Paul says, we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And these are just some of the general things he does for all believers. Each one of us could give testimony of the great things God has done for our lives personally. How he's worked all things together for good. Let me give one example uh, from the person I know best, me. I'm so thankful that God took me, an extremely shy, introverted, insecure young man, and by his grace alone empowered me, gave my life meaning and purpose to stand before you without knees knocking and preach his word on a weekly basis. God is so good to us. And our response to his goodness must be to walk in abounding thankfulness to him. Let me ask you a question. Are you a grateful person? It's often be said and I said and I agree thankfulness is a good test of spiritual maturity spirit, your spiritual state where you are a thankless heart reveals a life which is no longer maybe never has been focusing on Christ and his supremacy but instead is is looking at self Focusing not on what they have in Christ, which we've listed some of, which should be good enough, right? But instead, focusing on what they want in this world. Thankful hearts proclaim spiritual health and maturity. Scottish minister Alexander McLaren wrote, The life which is all influenced by thanksgiving will be pure, strong, happy in its continual counting of its gifts and its thought of the giver and not least happy and beautiful in its glad surrender of itself to him who has given himself for and to it, the noblest offering that we can bring. The only recompense which Christ asks is that our hearts and our lives should say, we thank thee, O Lord. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, and continual thanksgiving will ensure continuous growth in our Christian character and constant increase in the strength and depth of our faith. It's a lot. But I think we can say amen. McLaren understood the relationship between thankfulness and a deep abiding faith, which means uh, false teachers will have little success around thankful people. People. In fact, the thankful often draw others away from false teaching to Christ. So we're to make it a priority to abound in thanksgiving. This is something that Paul makes very clear in his letter to the churches. Again and again, with various words, he tells the believer to always, no matter what, walk in thanksgiving. To the Thessalonians, he writes, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All circumstances, no excuses for thanklessness are accepted. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks is a continual, universal response, always and everything. And later in Colossians, he'll emphasize thanksgiving again. In verse 15 of chapter 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Abounding, walking in thanksgiving is the right response to those who are in Christ Jesus, the Lord. And that brings us to the end of our sentence, our passage. But let me conclude with a final warning and application. Paul's told us how we're to walk in Christ. In remembrance, okay, that's something we can do. In dependence on Him, just depending on Him, knowing what He's done in us. In faith, in the faith, continuing in the faith that we've been established in, that we were taught, and then abounding in thanksgiving. That should picture our walk in Christ. This is how we're to live. And again, this is how we'll be protected from false teaching that so permeates our culture. But, and and here's the warning, these false teachers, then and now, have philosophies that are meant to deceive. They have a boss who's been deceiving from the very beginning. And what they say often sounds logical from our limited perspective. If you're making a, a counterfeit bill, a You don't use yellow construction paper. You don't cut it out in a shape of a triangle, and you don't put Batman's picture in the middle with a big number three on it. Deception looks authentic. It's supported often by intelligence, credentials, education, popularity, even, even a sense of rightness. But to the church in Corinth, Paul warned for such Men as false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is Paul's warning to the church. The devil knows what he's doing. He's been doing it a long time. And it oftentimes works. But Paul's given us our walking orders so that we might avoid his deception. He's prowling around. He's that lion seeking to devour us, but we have Christ. We can walk in Christ. Let me suggest one final application. It's only a sentence, by the way. Colossians 2, 6-7. I would suggest... Maybe you've even, we've read it how many times already? Five, six, I don't know. Memorize it. Spend time meditating on, this, uh, on these walking orders. Ask yourself, walk through it. Ask yourself, does this describe my walk? Am I on, is this the journey I'm on? Am I walking in Christ? Or has some falsehood crept in? Am I be, have I been diverted from the path, from God's path? I mean, God called me to this life of faith, and I'm in Jesus Christ the Lord, but I've been diverted by something? And if so, cry out to God. Similar to David's prayer in Psalm 86, David prayed, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And we can pray similar in a like manner. As you've taught and continue to teach me your way, 
In your word, O Lord, give me the power, the desire, the will to walk in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we do pray this. We thank you so much that that each one of us, we have your word. We've been taught so much. We've been given so much. Lord, I pray you would now work in our hearts, that you would would root us, that you would build us up, that you would establish us in the faith, that we might walk in you in, in thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving, Lord. I pray that we would be people that are solid, that would like that tree beside that river, that, that when the wind comes, when the axe comes even, Lord, that we will stand firm in Christ Jesus. And that we will reflect Christ Jesus, we'll represent Christ Jesus well in this, in this world as we walk in Him. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you want to stand with me as we get into our last song. Before we do, I just want to say... Um, Let's respond with uh, exactly what Pastor Cliff was talking about and this just idea of, you know, in light of um, all that Christ has done for us to just be thankful, to give thanks. And, um, you know, in the chorus of this song, it says, um, I'll give thanks to God when I don't have enough because he's more than enough, right? So it's this idea that... um, so many times in our lives we think, oh, I don't have enough, or I, I, I'm not content with what I have, right? And we get this feeling like, I don't have enough, but then we realize that Christ is more than enough, right? That we have so much more than what it is we deserve already. So let's just keep that in mind as we sing, just to think about God's grace and his goodness and his mercy and respond in thankfulness. Sing over. 